Hi, my name's Andy Chamberlain. I'm a writer and creative writing tutor, and you are listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. And welcome to episode 100 of the Creative Writers Toolbelt. Well, it feels amazing to be able to say that. After producing the podcast for the past three and a half years, I'm pleased to get here. But you know, this podcast has only survived because you and others like you have listened to it. So thank you for taking the time to explore with me how we can all be better writers and produce great work. So I've got some bits of news for you. First of all, some of you will know that I'm taking the best lessons and insight from those 100 episodes and I'm going to be putting them together into a book, The Creative Writer's Toolbelt Handbook. Now I'm hard at work on the draft of that and the book is scheduled to be out at the end of October this year and I'm on track for that date. If you are listening to this episode after October 2017, the book is out there. Go and check it out. You can find out more at my website. It's andrewjchamberlain.com or you can go and find it as a Kindle version or there are physical versions as well available on Amazon. If you want to be on the mailing list for news on that handbook, just drop me a line. Andrew at andrewjchamberlain.com. I'll keep you in the loop. Secondly, I'll be speaking at a Writer's Jumpstart, which is a day conference in London on the 11th of November. And I'll be joined there by the Scottish crime writer, Wendy H. Jones. And we're going to be giving you literally a jumpstart for writing and marketing your book. And we know these are huge topics, of course, but we're going to be giving you the key facts that you need to be able to write and market your own work. And as well as the presentations, there'll be lots of resources available to help you. So if your writing has stalled, or maybe you're just not sure what to do next, join us on the 11th of November in London to jumpstart your project. If you want to find out more, just drop me a line, andrew at andrewjchamberlain.com, and I'll send you some more details about that event. Finally, from this autumn, I'm making some more dates available in my diary for speaking engagements. I'd love to come and speak to your writing group or at your conference. So if you want me to share some of the advice and insight I've received during the course of doing these podcasts, just drop me a line. That email address again is andrew at andrewjchamberlain.com. So episode 100 and for this episode i thought i'd reflect on some of the key things that i've learned from producing the podcast over the past three years and to help me do this i am delighted to be joined by sarah warner now sarah is a professional writer editor and ghostwriter a contributor to forbes and the founder of the right now podcast which helps aspiring writers to find work life balance while pursuing their creative passion she spent the last decade of her career at that intersection between creativity and technology and has found her true calling in using these concepts to help and mentor others she's also hard at work on her first novel and you can find out more about her at sarahwarner.com that's s a r a h w-e-r-n-e-r.com she's also on twitter at right now podcast and that's right spelt w-r-i-t-e so sarah welcome to episode 100 of the creative writers tool belt thank you andy it is so great to be here i'm so excited to be talking with you for your 100th episode just i'm, a, I'm actually a big fan <laughs> of your show and yes well it's great to have you on and what i want to do just in the time that we have now is to reflect on some of the key lessons that i've learned whether that's stuff i've kind of figured out myself or that my guests in the show have told me and just spend some time reflecting with you on what those lessons are. So I wanted to start by talking about great stories. And one of the things that I, I've concluded 
from my time looking at stories is that there's a couple of things that are really vital for a story so one is that it has a, a broad guiding principle or a moral and that doesn't mean it has to be a good virtuous moral but it has to have something that's driving it and the protagonist of the story has to be fairly closely aligned to that moral the example i often use is lord of the rings that story is really a clash of two different worldviews two different ways in which people are going to live and you can call it good and evil um, and frodo as the protagonist his goal is closely aligned to that conflict. So do you agree with that sort of premise for what a great story is? What's your view on this? Wow, what a what a great question, first of all. I do agree with that, but I don't know if... I hope you don't hate me. I might disagree with you every once in a while. No, please do. That's good. Okay. That's good. If you just say, yes, I agree with that, this is going to be a pretty short conversation. It's going to be pretty boring. Okay, so like, Sarah, do you agree? Yes, moving on. No, I, I agree that those are just so deeply important and integral to having an interesting story. And and I, I wonder sometimes if so when I'm writing, I'm not a big planner. I am okay. a I'm a pantser all the yeah. way. I'm a person who writes by the seat of their pants. And I don't know if I line that stuff up necessarily beforehand so much as identify it afterward. Yeah. And I think that in identifying, you know, sort of the moral drive of the character, the protagonist alignment with that moral. There's also some other things that you can pull out that just are what I call delightful elements. And that can include a sense of humor, a sense of wit, a, a deep identification with the flaws in the main character. It's those little, what do I want to call them? Like little chunks, little, no, that sounds disgusting. Um, they're like, they're like little bonbons that you find and you eat and you bite in. And you're like, oh my gosh, this is filled with caramel. I'm so delighted right now. And it is, it's when I'm reading something and there's just a subtle like Doctor Who reference. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm delighted right now. Mm -hmm. It is when I am reading dialogue between two characters and I'm just feeling the connection between them. It's when there is a description so poignant that, I don't know, you feel it. You feel it in your yeah, heart yeah. or you see it just clearly. And and there's maybe in, in the best books, you know, there's maybe five or six of those moments when you're just like, yes, but that's as a reader, that is what I live for. When you can make me stop and experience something that's really... Mm what sucks me in. And that's really what makes a story great and exciting to me. And I feel like I'm a details person. And so I feel like that's sort of in opposition to the larger moral drive, um, the protagonist alignment to that moral. But I think that those are also a nice counterpart to that overarching story. Yeah, all the elements you've picked up on, I tend to think of as once you're into the story, once you're drilling into it, there are those things that are the delightful elements, as you call them, the things that you really do want to have. So that intimate dialogue that really brings out character and what well, I call it sensory description, I suppose. So I like, I like mm. description that really appeals to all of the senses and really does bring the reader into into the scene so they can they, they don't just hear it but they can taste it and feel it and touch it and all this sort of stuff mm. if we think about the structure of story i want to just give you a very quick outline of what i found to be the best expression of what a story structure is and you can then agree with me or disagree with that or, or just elaborate a little bit on it so i see six stages in a story uh, uh, very briefly there like there's the start so there's a kind of opening exposition setting the scene that kind of thing and then we'd have an inciting incident of some kind. And then you've got what some people call the rising action stage. So that the kind of momentum is gradually building in the story. Characters are being developed. The scene is being set. The whole thing is gradually moving towards stage four, which would be the crisis, which is like the decision 
point. So everybody has to decide what side they're on at that point. And then you get the climax, the kind of conflict. And then stage six is the resolution. So everything's now sorted out and we've calmed down again. And that to me seems to be the classic model of story. Do you, do you agree with that? Or do you think yes, but, or how, how do you, what do you think? That is another great question. And boy, I have so many thoughts on this. First of all, yes, I will agree that that is definitely the classic. I remember learning that story structure in English class in, in high school, the teacher drawing it. We had chalkboards back then, drawing it on the chalkboard and saying, okay, I understand this. And then once you see that, you sort of start to look for it in all of the books that you're reading and all the movies that you're seeing. I think that readers like that because it gives them, it gives them a, a place where they have expectations and we as writers can meet those expectations by delivering on that classic structure. But I think what interests me as a writer is, boy, do I enjoy like subverting and playing around <laughs> with that structure as a writer, just because it's just so fun to create. And once you have those limits and boundaries in place, it's so fun to step outside of them sometimes. Mm -hmm. And it might not make for the best story. And you probably don't want to start with, uh, you know, the conclusion or what have you. But there's been very interesting and well-written stories that have done that before. Uh, one of the books that I actually have just finished reading is Among Others by Joe Walton. Okay, yes. And I don't know if you're a fan of her, if you've read this book, but it was it's sort of a, a, a low-key fantasy kind of tale. And it starts after the conclusion of uh, what I think was probably a very exciting story. And it just is a very drawn out stage six of resolution for this story that we never see. And it's it's interesting as an intellectual exercise. I don't know if every book should follow that structure, but there are <laughs> fun ways to play around with that. And then I think the other thing I wanted to say is I've noticed that instead of sort of the line with the peak and then it trailing off and continuing mm -hmm. forward, I've always seen like a bicycle wheel. So the okay. story starts and it travels along a line, but the story itself is a circle. And you start in one place with the mm -hmm. wheel in a certain position. It moves forward. It makes one rotation. And then the wheel looks the same when it's done, but it's it's moved the reader along with it. And and I don't know if you've heard that analogy before or um, no, I haven't if this actually. is just my brain being weird. <laughs> so I, I like the idea of... It's, it's a wheel, but it's moved forward, hasn't it, I guess? So it's traveled. Mm -hmm. It's traveled. And then for me, that's, I think for me, that's how I get a sense of closure um, from what yeah. I'm writing is you start with these elements, you end up in a similar place, but everyone has evolved, everyone has changed, and maybe the place that you're in isn't so the same at mm. all. Mm. I suppose I'd see that as there was a normal life yes. in the story, and then it all, stuff happens, Stuff, loads of stuff happens and then there's a new normal which is like the same but different to what and that wheel has turned one revolution but we've moved on yes i want to move on and talk to you about characters and again i've got my own ideas that i've just formed gradually over the months and, and years doing the podcast about uh what happens with characters and i i suppose to start with i think characters have to have two absolutely fundamental facets to them one i think they have to have what i call character essence which is like the thing that makes us recognize them it's it's a it's somehow the totality of mm. who they are and this can apply to people that we know you know people we have family friends there's a thing about them that we think i recognize that person as a whole person just in that and the second thing was to give the character a goal to give them mo you know motivation and a passion for something in a story so i don't know what do you think about those ideas i love those ideas 
And I know exactly what you're saying about character essence. And it's so difficult because we identify mm. even the people in our own lives. We identify them in different ways. Like, oh, that's my Aunt Linda and she is kind. Or, you know, this is that guy who lives down the street with the weird nose. And, you know, and, and so yeah, they do it. They, yeah. Real life people have those things that those details that we latch on to. And, and so I definitely agree with that. I agree with the motivation. I've seen a lot of stories where the main character is the only character with motivation and goals in a story. And all of the other surrounding characters are just there to sort of help that one character along in their goal. And and I and I love Harry Potter, but I always think of the Harry Potter books with this. It's like everybody is so devoted to Harry except for his enemies. <laughs> and and you kind of think like, you know, if if Hermione could do whatever she wanted and she she wasn't <laughs> roped into helping Harry, like what does she actually want? Like is, does she want to go off and have her own adventures? I don't know. So I I, I love that and I, I love mm. extending that to mm. making sure that your supporting cast of characters has their own interests and goals as well. Yes, definitely, yeah. Yeah, because they are the protagonist in their own story. Mm -hmm. So they don't just, well, most of them certainly aren't just hanging around waiting to be called upon. That always bothers me. I and, and I see a fair amount of books where that's the case, and it just bothers me to no end. I'm like, why does this side character have no life other than supporting <laughs> the main character? So, I mean, obviously, for some characters, you can't go too much in, into what their goals and motivations are. But I agree with you, actually, to give everybody, every character, that sense of a motivation, not just, say, the protagonist and the antagonist fighting each other is good. And the other things that I think also are important for character are, first of all, how they engage with other characters. Mm. So for me, this has always been something that's quite important. And this comes perhaps back to the medium of dialogue. And, and I try and use dialogue to, to express what a character is, who they are. Uh, I don't know whether you've, did you try and do that at all with your work? I do. And I think that it, it's exposed in different ways based on the point of view that you're using. Um, I tend to write from first person point of view. So it's a little bit easier okay. to, yeah, to have the, the reader automatically engage with them because they're essentially telling them this story about themselves. But yeah, I love using dialogue as a way to get to know people. Absolutely. You said you were a pantser on the planet do you use character arc at all do you do any character arc planning or anything like that or, or does that exist but it just exists as the story develops organically for you so when i do the pantsing which just sounds ridiculous um but when i sit down to write out my first draft i'll just pants the whole thing and and what i do during this is i just throw as much terrible stuff at my character as i can and just see how they handle it <laughs> and then when i go in for the for the second draft I go in and I clean that up and I read my original draft and I say, oh, here's how they've changed. Here's how, you know, they've matured. And it really lets me see how the character would have done it. And then maybe I'll insert some elements there, but I'm always very careful to make sure it doesn't feel too forced as yeah. well. Yeah. Okay. The next thing on my list of the four kind of secondary aspects of it is characteristics mm. and voice. So I think over time I've come to think of voice as at least as important if not more important than the potentially pick and mix stuff like i'm going to give this character a blue hat and a funny nose <laughs> and, you know they're going to be six foot tall or, or whatever it is what how do you approach that aspect of it the characteristics and voice of the character boy what a great question i actually struggled with this for a really long time because for the longest time i feel like my characters maybe all had one personality that they all shared <laughs> and it was yeah. it was very it was very frustrating and you know it I think Stephen King said that, you know, every character that you create is partially you anyway. And so there's going to be some of that naturally. Mm. But 
something that helps me, this is going to maybe sound a little stupid, is I, I think of playlists for each character, like the style of music that okay. they would listen to. Yeah. And and for me, that just helps me relate a little bit more. So maybe one character loves the Ramones and another character listens to nothing but Mozart and another character is top 40, you know, and, and that get, that helps me develop the way they talk. And it helps me uh, insert little little ticks into their personality through their dialogue and through their voice, mm. which makes them all not sound exactly the same. And would you say that that also helps you with that character essence that I was talking about? This is a slightly Absolutely. leading question, but hey. Oh, yeah. no. <laughs> well, now that you say that, yes. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> it absolutely does, yes. Um, the other kind of secondary aspect that I think is important, which may actually play well to your first-person stuff, is I is what I call it the interior life of the character. So, mm. like, what they might be thinking, and that, that may be expressed on the page, literally, as, like, you know, so what the character is thinking, but the thought life, that characters have how, how does that work for you this is one of the other things that i struggle with a lot and it's maybe because i overdevelop the character's thought life i'm a very like high empathy person which means that i connect with people i can very easily imagine myself what they're going through and so when i'm creating a character when i'm writing from their point of view I almost do it too much. I almost bore the reader with like, do they want to go here or here? And what are the implications mm. of this on mm. this? And it's like, okay, Sarah, calm down. Like nobody cares this much about what your character's doing on the inside. Um, mm. I feel like I just rambled myself away from your original question. Well, actually your answer was possibly more interesting than my original question because I want to follow up. On, oh. <laughs> I want to follow up on what you just said there because it raised for me an issue that I have found with my writing and I think every writer does which is that we can sometimes write for ourselves so if we're very mm. empathetic we, we try to empathize with our characters because I, I to a certain extent also am quite empathetic and I find that I want to understand my characters rather than letting them get on with whatever it is that they need to get on with mm -hmm. even to the point I mean, maybe I, I wouldn't be very good at horror perhaps for this reason I don't know but um, I I don't like being nasty to my characters, and people have said to me in the past, you need to, you know, if the head's got to come off, that's just the <laughs> way it is. <laughs> but I I have to struggle a bit more to do the kind of grisly things or the unpleasant things to characters. I don't know. What do you think? It is hard because you think of them as like your children, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you've you've created them and you want to nurture them and nourish them, and you you don't want to like have their dog get hit by a bus or you know whatever horrible horrible thing you're cooking up to have happen to them. And I think that's the the very intriguing thing about characters is is I think that the more empathetic the writer can be with the characters they're creating, the more the reader will be able to feel that empathy and sort of jump into that character's shoes as mm -hmm. well. So I I think it while it can be sort of a negative thing. It, it, it can also be positive. I think it creates very addictive characters as well. Maybe it's a question of not over-describing them. Maybe it's a question of just mm. giving, a, giving a sketch of who they are, enough, to, enough for the reader to engage, but then not dwelling too much on, on all of the different features they have. Mm -hmm. And when you say details, like, that, is that physical? Is that personality? Is that, you know, their history, their past? Yeah, it's it's... I suppose it's all of those things or how those things manifest in the character as they are now. One of the little phrases that I use when it comes to talking about description is that description needs to be sparse and specific. So not too much of mm. it is quite sparse, but it's very specific. So it's you don't just say somebody's an average height or whatever. You actually you talk about exactly what height they are, 
exactly what colour their eyes are, exactly what little manner the little mannerism is that you want to talk about. I, I think that's the way to handle description. I think it can be. It's very hard to work that in naturally sometimes when you're working on telling mm. a story that flows really well. So I read a lot of books because I'm a huge book nerd. And there's inevitably in about 40% of the books, there's a mirror scene when the character looks into the mirror and they're like, I brush back my black hair, my blue eyes sparkle in the golden dawn. (laughs) And it's like, this is, I I understand what the author is doing. They're like, I literally have no other way to like show what this character looks like aside from the cover illustration. But I feel like there's a way to do it without feeling clumsy or uh, like you're trying too hard. And I'm not sure what that magical element is. I think to your earlier point, a lot of it comes through in dialogue, a lot of the important personality stuff. Um, But maybe, and, and this is something, again, I've been struggling with. I feel like I've used the word struggle about 700 times since we've started speaking today. <laughs> um, but for me, those little delightful moments that I mentioned earlier, sometimes those work if you can encapsulate maybe one physical characteristic in those like, oh, yeah. Okay. The, yeah. This main character has a scar on her right cheek, and I'm going to fixate on that. I don't know. Yes, I don't. I don't have all the answers, but it's definitely interesting to talk about. Well, I think I'd come back to this character essence thing. I think if you're a writer, you can create a character. It isn't a real character yet. It's just a pick and mix of stuff. Mm. But then at some point, what you hope to get to is that point where you suddenly think, yeah, now I know who this person is, and then I think you can seed in. This is why I said sparse, I suppose, with the description. Just mm. little bits of who they are um, without, as you say, resorting to the mirror scene. And sometimes dialogue, although you can't overdo it, dialogue can be really helpful with this sort of thing. I want to move on and just uh, talk to you a little bit bit about setting. Mm. So for me, there's two critical elements to to setting. Uh, And it is that setting has to be credible and immersive. And by credible, I mean, it needs to be believable. It doesn't have to be true, but it has to be believable in some way. But it also has to be immersive in the sense that the reader can feel absorbed in it. And you're obviously immersed in it. What, what, what do you think of that? Those ideas? Um, this is one of those times where I'm just going to be like, yes, but but I can also elaborate. <laughs> <laughs> I can also elaborate. Uh, please do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think one of the things that helps the setting to be both credible and immersive is making sure that all five of the reader's senses are engaged. Smell, sight, taste, sound and touch. And again, it's hard to work in without being obvious that that's what you're doing. But I, I think that that really goes a long way in helping the reader immerse themselves into that setting. You know, I, I, I completely agree with that. Um, I think these all, the, these things all join up with each other to a certain extent, don't they? Mm-hmm. That we, we've talked about sensory description. I think sensory description is, is essential across the board to develop character and to create setting and, and mood and all, all the rest of it. Now, I know you said to me earlier that uh, you've done some ghostwriting. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about research. So I'd be interested to hear how you approach the question of research, both with your ghostwriting and with any fiction that you write as well. Wow, that is such a good question because they're so completely different. And and so I'll start with my ghostwriting. So most of the ghostwriting I do is nonfiction. And so people will come to me and say, hey, you know, uh, I want to be a leader in my field. I want to have a book about this. Say it's a financial expert, you know, like, hey, why you should invest this way. But you know what? I don't have the time and I'm not a great writer. And I'm like, hooray, that's perfect. I'll help you out. And so research with that is basically an in-depth interviewing process to get all of those really good nuggets of information out of their brains. And then it's also, you know, just making sure that I understand the jargon in that particular industry. So it's it's very, very different than the sort of research that I do for fiction. 
which is so much more self-driven and experiential. I'm one of those writers who carries around. I have this like little pocket size notebook. You can't see it right now, but I'm, I'm holding it up. <laughs> and it's just this little craft paper field notes journal. And inside of my little field note journal, uh, you can find uh, just random little sentences, random little little images. And I feel like this is very common among writers. I, I feel like a lot of writers are collectors. We go through life like cherry picking the weird the sensational, the descriptive, you know, collecting all of these very interesting pieces. I've been keeping these little notebooks for years and I, I still use mm. them. I, I lived in Chicago for a few years and I still have these little descriptive sentences. So there was a time when a rat ran over my foot and like I was so freaked out by the experience that I wrote down exactly what it felt like. And I can still, when I read that description, feel it to this day. And so, and you wonder why I write horror. And so... <laughs> You know, rats running over your bare feet. So that's awesome. Mm. That's you know, a, that's a, but that's what we look for as writers. Right. Isn't it? I suppose these things it's um, I've got this phrase that I use for research, which is that we have to take the magpie and compost heap approach. Um, yes. Which which is, sounds pretty random. But what I mean by that is uh, as magpies, we do what you just said, actually. We, we look for shiny things, interesting things and collect them. Um, and the compost heap for me works in the sense of there might be stuff that I see or experience or, or hear or whatever, and I might just file it away and it might be years before I use it. Uh, is that is that something that you found you do? Oh my gosh, yes. And there's absolutely no way I can improve on your description of this. I even love the idea. <laughs> I, I love the idea of the compost too, because you get the sense of everything melting and fusing and rotting mm. together. And that's what happens. So I'll have a memory from six years ago and a memory from two years ago, but they've like rotted together into this <laughs> compost mess. And I'm like, yes, this is what I've been waiting for. It like, it's the sense of like ripening together. I don't know. It's, I think that's such a great description. It might work particularly well for horror. I don't know. Horror and compost right? there has got to be a story in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I would talk to you a little bit about uh, as well about what I would call tools of the trade so techniques and things that as writers we need to be aware of and the first one that i wanted to just touch on was foreshadowing so do you use foreshadowing in any of your work and how do you use it and how do you approach it boy that's a great question and i bet if you ask 10 different writers you would get 10 different answers for me since i'm a pantser i kind of just write and i dump stuff out and then later I'll say, oh, my gosh, I created this really weird, uh, this really weird image over here. I'm totally going to use this and like post foreshadow. I don't know what you call that post shadow it. Um, <laughs> I've never heard that phrase before. That's cool. Yes. Coining new phrases. That's that's what we're doing today. Oh, my gosh. No, I love it. And I feel like foreshadowing is one of the things that I won't know what to foreshadow until I've maybe finished my first draft and I kind of know where my story is going or I've finished an outline and I know where my story is going. Again, it's one of those things that if it's done well, it will just sink into the reader's mind almost without them knowing it. And then they will get such a wonderful payoff later. It's very easy also to do it in a very clunky way. And uh, it's it's very easy to put in very traditional foreshadowing elements like, oh, and then the sun sank into the sky and everything was dark. And it's like, OK, that's you know, that's cool. But sometimes that can feel a little forced or a little yeah. like like sledgehammered in there. Um, I really appreciate innovative, unusual foreshadowing. 
the train is back. The train is back. He's, he's enjoying it. Is this foreshadowing? Is he foreshadowing <laughs> something? Is this if my this impending was, doom? If this was one of your horror stories, some bad stuff would be about to happen, possibly. <laughs> Gosh. I'm so sorry about this. <laughs> it's, right. it's quite funny. So, yeah, innovative foreshadowing is, is, is good. And I wanted to ask you as well about point of view. You may take a very particular approach to point of view especially if you if you deal with first person a lot i guess that's in, in your in your ghost writing isn't it but so, so how do you approach point of point of view choices boy oh my gosh you're asking so many amazing questions because you know you get so much different information and you you end up with quite a different story than you would when you change the point of view the novel mm. that i'm writing right now started out in third person and so uh, character X did this, you know, she went outside, all of that. And and I later went through and changed it because there were some things I wanted to reveal without telling. And I found that I had to have the character think and experience them in a very intimate way. And so point of view is just one of those things you kind of have to test and play around with, find out what works best for your story. You know, we talked earlier about that rich internal uh, life of the character. If you really have something that is an internal struggle, if you want to display that, you know, first person point of view is, is a great way to show that. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah but, the, you know, then you're also very limited because you can really only do it from one character's point of view. And then you mm -hmm. do have a main character. If you're someone who enjoys an ensemble cast, you know, like the Game of Thrones stories, or mm -hmm. if you want to keep some things about your main character hidden, you know, then then third person can be great as well. Uh, the other thing I had on my list of like handy stuff or interesting stuff is the old faithful bit of advice showing not telling mm. so we've talked about on, on my podcast we talked a little bit about showing not telling but what's your take on that what does that mean for you with your work i'm just going to keep saying what a great question um <laughs> I, I, want, I, I want to hear you say that's a terrible question in like no we're going to skip this one because it's it's the worst no <laughs> Uh, showing not telling. I think it means different things to different people. And for some people, when they show and don't tell, they end up with something very different. They end up with something very imagistic. And I remember from your, I think your first episode focuses on this, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah, yeah, way back. Yeah. It does. And I, I remember there was this like guy who was like exactly six foot five and you know, he was writing a letter and you, you just put forth all of these boring facts. So it's fact, 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 instead of mm. involving the reader in a story that they can touch and taste and feel. Yes. And so I think yeah. there's some element of sensory immersion there. It, it, it's so interesting because you have to balance it a little bit because at the end of the day, writing is about conveying information to the reader. And so what is telling and how is that different than showing is showing all sensory is telling all flat exposition. I think that you do need a little bit of a mix of the two to have a healthy story, but that's something I think I'm still exploring myself as well. It's one of those things where it, it feels like really good advice and it is good advice, but it isn't an objective rule, is it? There's still, mm -hmm. there's still a kind of subjective decision that's, that's got to be made into it. And are there any other sort of tools of the trade or aspects to writing that for you are really important that are like, yeah, you, we need to mention this as well. We need to mention this tool or this sort of aspect of the craft. You know, I do. It's maybe non-traditional, but I don't think it gets talked about enough. And that is the writer's schedule. My, my schedule is one of my most important writing tools. And if I don't have time for writing in my schedule, then I won't write. Like I will, I will not uh, be faithful to that dedicated writing time. So I know that's a little, um, 
not what you meant. But at the same time, for me, it is absolutely crucial. But do you want to expand on that a little bit and, and tell us how how does that work for you then? How, how do you create a, a schedule for your life and how do you try and fit writing into that then? Oh my gosh, yes. This is the subject of my own podcast, which focuses on work. I didn't do this on purpose, <laughs> uh, which focuses on work, writing and life balance. And so you know, we have families, we have job obligations, but we also have this passion to write and create. And maybe that's not what we're getting paid to do. So we have to do it in our free time. And our free time is very valuable and people like to take our free time. And so I use just a digital calendar and I will block off, you know, Sarah is going to be busy writing from 5.30 a.m. to 7 a.m., you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And everybody who knows me knows not to bother me during that time. Wow. Do you really do you really write that early? Is that what you do? Yeah. So I do my I do my nonfiction writing in the mornings like that. And then my creative stuff I save as a special treat. And that is 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. And I have it scheduled for most days of the week. But once in a while, I'll, I'll, I'll slip up on that one a little bit. But yeah, yeah. And it's about identifying what type of writing you do best at what time of day, realizing what you need to say yes and no to. So I need to turn down this opportunity so that I can say yes to writing this day. Um, it's just for me a very crucial tool for my for my writing. Fair enough. I, we may actually come back to this in, in a, a few minutes, actually, because I want to talk a little bit more about the writer's life and, and the life of the writer and all that kind of stuff in a moment. But there's a couple of other aspects of, of the craft itself that I just wanted to pick up. So in the podcast as well, one of the areas that I've looked at is around tone and style and voice. And in terms of tone, I've talked about in the context of trying to set the mood for a piece. And I just wanted what your opinion was that on that how do, how do you try and influence the mood with the language that you use in your writing and tone and stuff like that i think it's important to note that the tone can come from a number of different places so when i work with tone it can be part of the setting that sets the mood so a bunch of abandoned buildings sets one tone while a you know a cheerful countryside cottage sets a very different tone there's also tone that comes from the dialogue of the characters and that may be at odds with the overall setting or the mood of the story. Um, if they're having a very weirdly terse conversation, that tone is going to indicate that something in the plot is maybe changing. And it, it can be a very powerful tool when used that way. Uh, the tone is also very important uh, when it comes uh, comes in through dialogue and then it comes in with the narrator as well. And even just your word choice there. Mm, I think some people might argue with this, but I make a distinction between tone and style so for, for me tone is like the mood that you're creating perhaps through the setting as you said and, and through the language you're using whereas style is much more there's like a house style mm -hmm. for magazines and, and things like that is that a distinction that works for you at all do you recognize that do you perhaps use a different style between your fiction and non-fiction oh yes i absolutely do i always feel like tone is an emotion or a mood like you said that kind of comes out from the writing where style is more what you put into the writing okay yeah. in my mind style is more genre aligned than it is anything else so oh you have a rip-roaring comedy and that's the style or you have a film noir sort of style where you have a cozy mystery style and there's expectations from the reader i think that comes with the label of a certain type of style mm. and i just to kind of complicate that makes it a bit further i then talk about voice as well and i've had uh, editors on my podcast who well in fact there was one guy i spoke to 
commissioning editor and I said, what is the one thing you look for in the work that crosses your desk? And he immediately said, voice. Yeah, it's like he, he buys work on, on the voice. And I think voice is unique to each writer, I think. So underneath all the style, all the tone, there is voice. Do you agree with that at all or disagree? Or what, what's your view on the writer's voice? I agree with you 100%. And it's it's interesting. I talk about voice and tone in nonfiction and ghostwriting as well. Voice is very clearly, to me, it's not the voice of the characters. It's not the style. It's not the tone. Yeah. The, yeah. the voice is the writer. It's the yeah. strength of the writer. And it's, it's the strength of the writing. It's voice to me is how it flows, how that writer uses words, the strength of their vocabulary. It's just all of those mm. wonderful things mm. um, that are very, very hard to describe. <laughs> it's it's less visual. It's less emotional. But it, it you're right. You're absolutely right. It's the glue that holds everything together. It's just frustrating. It's, it's so difficult to define, isn't it? You know, when you see it, but yeah. it's, 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 it's like you can't just say what it is. It's I suppose that's just part of the art of the, of the craft of writing, isn't it? It is. What I wanted to ask you about next really then was genre and tropes, the tropes associated with genre. So in my podcast, I talk about the fact that using tropes and using tropes within a genre, I think is a very good thing. But the trick is to try and subvert those tropes and to try to present them in some new and original way. How, how do you use tropes within the, the genres that, that you write in? That is such a wonderful question. I know that when you're looking to entertain a reader, it tends to be all about what the reader expects from you. And so if I know that uh, romance books have a very set set sort of, of tropes that they follow. And But I, I think that some of the best romances and mysteries, and I think sci-fi is a little more lenient with tropes, but using those and subverting them, I agree, is great. It just depends how you do it in sort of that dance, that delicate dance with the reader's expectations. And I think that if you can pull that off, then you'll, you'll, you'll do it very well. You'll subvert the trope and you'll create something completely new, which is incredible. This is a harder question, I think, but do you have any suggestions or thoughts on good ways to subvert a trope? If I'm trying to write inside science fiction or horror or romance or whatever it is, how might I go about subverting a trope in that genre? You know, one of my favorite examples, and I know that your show is very good with providing applicable examples. One of my favorite examples in the horror genre is Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where the whole premise of the show is, you know, usually in horror movies, it's the blonde cheerleader type that is just the first to die and she's stupid <laughs> and she doesn't know how to take care of herself. The character of Buffy the Vampire Slayer is, you know, he, Joss Whedon, who created the show, takes that trope and flips it on its head and created a very successful seven-season show out of it. Yes. And so I don't know if it's necessarily um, what you do so much as how you do it. And he did it with a sense of humor. He did it with a little wink at the audience. And so I don't necessarily know if, like, oh, instead of the hard-boiled film noir cop, or maybe you have a very idealistic redheaded young girl and she's in this like weird setting so sometimes it could be fun to play with that but mm. it's not necessarily what you do so oh you don't have to switch male for female or you know this for this it's more of how you do it and and sort of what we talked about earlier with setting that tone how how it how just playing with the dynamic there and how that whatever you're using to subvert it uh, react with the tone, reacts with the other characters, reacts with the expectations that you've set with the reader by writing in a certain genre. Okay. 
Now, in my podcast and some recent episodes, the last few, I've been talking about the writer's life and being a writer and feeling like you're a writer and that the kind of mental processes you have to go through and all of that kind of stuff, which I know are things that actually you focus on in the broad sense in, in your work. Um, but I, I just wondered what you thought of my six steps to living a good life or living a healthy life as a writer. Um, which I talked about in the last episode, episode 99. And just, just to say what they are, they were get enough sleep, drink enough water, a little group of them, which is eat well, not too much alcohol and keep off the drugs. Uh, the fourth one is do a bit of exercise. The fifth one is have a good social life where you give and receive with others. And the final one is try and keep spiritually well, or, or, or whether, whether you have a faith or not, that's meditate or pray or whatever you do to try and centre yourself regularly so they sound like very worthy objectives but I think those are the things that it's a good idea to try and do to to live well and to write well what what do you think of that I think that well I know you and I agree most of the time but I think that I might agree to disagree a little bit here um well well I well I do agree that those are actually really great ways to take care of yourself I don't know if I would say that there's necessarily a right way to live to be a writer and, and, you know, literature is full of all of these wonderful characters. And I'm not just talking about the characters and the stories that people write. I'm talking about even the writers themselves. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. there's, all, there's, there's all those famous writers with opium problems and alcoholism. And, and I'm not saying that you should, oh, my gosh, no, don't do opium, please. And, and you know, <laughs> don't become an alcoholic because you think it will make you a better writer because it won't. But I also want to say that there's a certain formulaic life you have to live in order to be a successful writer, just because, you know, people are so different and uh, come from different circumstances. And in a way, I think a lot of time the art you create, the writing you create comes from a struggle and comes from, I don't know, everything not being perfect and comes from battling an inner demon. But I mean, at the same time, I really appreciate what you're saying, because if you do take care of those things, you know, you will be you'll be more focused on your writing. You won't be sleepy. You won't be hungover, you know. (laughs) And so uh, so I I agree to disagree and appreciate both sides of that. Yeah, if that makes sense. I think I'll say that you've just qualified what I've said a bit rather than outright disagreeing with it. But I, I, I (laughs) I take what you're saying there and it actually it's actually reminded me something else that I think is very important or critical really with writing and I think you might agree with this and that is to try and be authentic this is something I, again I talk about in my podcast a little bit uh, it's it's absolutely critical that as much as possible the work is authentic um, I don't know I don't, I don't know whether you I mean I've assumed you'll agree with that maybe I'm being a bit presumptuous here Do, would you agree with that or would, what would you say around that as issue oh obviously yes yes and you're not being presumptuous I I agree with that and I think that goes back to what something we were talking about before and that's that voice that writer's mm, voice that we were talking yeah, about yeah. and I think that that's very important that the, the authenticity come across in your voice as a writer I think that's really crucial mm. Definitely. Um, Just sort of coming to the end now, I wondered if there were some other things, particularly drawing on your experiences and the things that you've said in your podcast that we haven't covered, but that you think are really important for writers to know. And this may not be technique. This may not be like five steps to doing this or that. It might be just something more reflective within the writer themselves. Well, what's the the important stuff, do you think, there? (laughs) I absolutely do. I have two things that I would love to call out. And the first is a tool that uh, you could add to your writer's toolbox. It's a little bit different than most of the tools that you talk about on your show. It is, it's not really a literary device or 
anything like that. It is a calendar. It is a schedule. And for me, this is one of the most important tools in my toolbox because we talk about work, life, and writing balance. We talk about wedging writing into a very, very full life. And in order to do that, you have to understand where your time is going, what you're saying yes and no to, and having a calendar where you say, okay, I'm going to block off 7 a.m. to 8.30 a.m. this morning, and I'm going to write, and nobody's going to bother me during that time. It's just a completely valuable tool. And so I, I would I would love to bring that up. That's been valuable for me. And then the other thing that I'd like to call out is it, it's so easy to be afraid. It's so easy to be disheartened or discouraged, especially if you get rejection letters, especially if you get many rejection letters, especially if you feel like your family doesn't understand what you do. You know, they see you looking out into space and they don't realize that you're working on a problem with your novel in your head or you're working out the next three tips for your blog post. And so don't 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 lose hope. Don't be discouraged. Sit down and do it. That's the only way that you're going to become a better writer is by writing and reading and actually sitting down and doing the work and remembering that the reason you're doing this work is because you love it so much. That is great advice. I guess we've all been there, haven't we, where we felt discouraged or it's nobody understands the work we're having to put in or uh, you've worked on something for hours and hours and somebody's just rejected it with a two-line rejection letter. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It, you can, it can really crush you, can't it? It is tough. And just something on that, somebody once said to me this a long time ago, that it's a good idea as a writer to separate your worth as a person from the worth of your work. Mm-hmm. Um, so so actually, who you are as a person is, you, you are valuable as a person, whatever you publish, whatever anybody says about your work. I, now, I don't know whether that's kind of, in, sort of pointing towards the kind of thing that you were saying just now. It, it is. I guess we act out who we are. We act out our personalities through our actions. And if you're a writer, a lot of your actions, a lot of what you spend your time doing and how you express yourself comes out in your writing. And so it's so hard to to separate the two. And and generally, as, as a writer, often what you what you have worth in as your, your self-worth is invested in this stuff that you've been creating, especially if it's confessional, especially if it's, if it's personal work. And I know it's hard yeah. to do that, yeah, but, yeah. and, and this is where, for me, this is where my faith comes into it. Knowing that, knowing that I am loved unconditionally by friends and family, by God or a higher power or whatever it is that you, that you believe in, just knowing that you do have worth in the eyes of those people, that you have worth in the eyes of God, that you were created for a purpose. It's it's a very powerful reminder of me for me. And you talked earlier about writers needing sort of that spiritual health side of things. I think that that is completely, completely integral to have because if you put your entire self-worth into something that's so easy for someone else, like you said, to reject in two sentences, you're going to be on, on shaky ground there. So just just remember that you are loved, that you are worthy, regardless of whether other people decide, you know, subjectively if they like your work or not. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, that can apply whatever your faith or, or if you have no faith at all, can't it really, that you can find... Mm-hmm. find the value in in who you are and set and just resist that temptation to bind bind your work in with that as you say okay so we're just coming to the end now but i wanted to give you another chance just to tell us a little bit about how people can reach out to you how they can find out about your podcast about your work about what you get up to oh my gosh yes 
I I love the internet. I am definitely a child of the internet. I don't know, um, but I'm <laughs> everywhere. I have a I have a website, so you can come visit me. I'm at sarahwerner.com. That's S-A-R-A-H-W-E-R-N-E.com. That's where you can find my podcast. You can find links to things I've written. Um, I'm a contributor to Forbes, and I write about podcasting, so you can read all about that there if you like. My podcast, which is out on my website, is called Right Now, and that's W-R-I-T-E, because it's a pun, because we're writers. And um, it is all about work, life, and writing balance. And it gives you the time, energy, and courage you need to pursue your passion and to write or create every day. And um, I hope you enjoy listening to it. It is more on the sort of touchy feely artistic inspirational side of things but sometimes you know sometimes we need that um it does yes it it does work very hard to remind you that you are a writer and that you are you are a worthy person so cool okay so that and that that uh, website again was uh sarah werner it's s-a-r-a-h-w-e-r-n-e-r.com is that correct yep that is that is correct and i'm also out on uh i'm out on twitter instagram and facebook just search for right now podcast cool Okay. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Well, thank you, Andy. This has been delightful. We've had a good time. It's brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.